I've invited one of the world's leading progressive economists, Professor Michael Hudson, to share his points of view. He will be uninterrupted. I've just finished about an hour ago filming Dr. Hudson for a new documentary I've been working on for about six years called Poverty, Inc. The first part of his discussion was very in-depth about the world economy. But then I started asking about, will what is happening in Greece and Latvia happen here? And he said yes. But more importantly, I then asked him a series of questions about what's going to likely happen to our economy and the average person over the next one, two, or three years. Is there any way out of this? Who's really responsible? Why do we look at Wall Street when Wall Street is a bubble? Why do we not pay attention or honest about the real unemployment numbers. Now, that discussion with Professor Michael Hudson. Late in 2011, it was obvious that uh, Greece had reached a point where it couldn't pay the debts uh, that had been run up. Uh, And the debts that were uh, in question were basically 45 billion euros of uh, government debt. Uh, The Financial Times uh, quickly pointed out that uh, Greek citizens alone had 50 billion euros in Swiss banks. So the uh, amount of uh, money that the government of Greece uh, owed uh, foreign investors uh, was basically money that uh, was a result of not taxing the rich people who uh, had moved their money outside of uh, Greece into Switzerland and various uh, offshore banking centers. There was a tendency in the United States to blame most of this on the colonels. In one sense, you could say the situation of Greece uh, stems back to the World War II meeting between Stalin and Churchill when they uh, drew a map of post-war Europe and uh, uh, Churchill put Greece in the uh, British sphere and Stalin agreed uh, to uh, let Uh, uh, make sure that there would be no communist uprising, came in and did what uh, the Russians usually did in every uh, country where there was a strong communist movement. They killed all the labor leaders and all the communist leaders who weren't uh, strictly obedient uh, to to Moscow. Uh, Nonetheless, there was still a revolutionary movement and a progressive movement uh, in the Greek middle class and the working class. So the Americans came in and uh, put in uh, the colonels. Uh, The colonels put in a tax system where basically uh, they began to corrupt uh, the government and make sure that the rich people uh, and uh, their constituency were not taxed. Uh, And then something uh, even further to the right of the colonels came in, and that was socialism. Uh, The Greeks had a socialist leader who was the head of the Socialist International. That's the second international. Uh, And uh, he uh, essentially uh, used the government as a patronage uh, system for uh, members of uh, the the Socialist Party, uh, PESOC, uh, and worked with the Conservative Party. So essentially you had a Greek bureaucracy of no-show jobs that were... uh, in power largely because they made sure that no um, uh, upper middle class or wealthy person would have to pay tax. Uh, The socialist position is only tax labor, only tax uh, really uh, uh, the working class, uh, and it's the inverse of 
obviously, of everything that socialism had uh, stood for before World War II. Well, finally, uh, the degree of corruption uh, got so hard uh, by 2011 that it became apparent uh, that the debts that uh, Greece uh, were running up, uh, and these are debts not to develop uh, domestic uh, infrastructure, but largely uh, they were military debts uh, to buy German arms, uh, that uh, there was going to be a default. What was going to happen? Well, to understand the Greek situation, you have to understand that there had been a dress rehearsal uh, in Latvia and the Baltics uh, since the late 1990s of continually imposing austerity, lowering wages in the public sector, lowering wages to see just how much a country was going to be able to uh, be reduced. And the question was, okay, we've seen Latvia and the post-Soviet uh, economies uh, willing to see their living standards and wage levels decline and force immigration. What can we do with a, a Western economy like Greece? So they decided to use Greece, basically, uh, to begin uh, putting on the squeeze. And uh, by uh, 2012, the European uh, Union and uh, the European Central Bank uh, and the IMF said, okay, you have uh, 50 uh, billion, 45 billion euros that you owe. We know you can't pay, but that's okay. Uh, we're going to do uh, what essentially an invading army would do. We're going to have, uh, just like the northern Norman conquest uh, a thousand years ago, took over England. Uh, you don't have to pay us. Just uh, give us your land. Give us the islands the government owns. Give us your seaports. Give us your water system so we can charge your population. Uh, you'll pay us by privatizing. Uh, the economy. Uh, the socialist econ socialists were all for it. They said you've got to get rid of government, privatize and give everything to the bankers. Uh, Papandreou, uh, the socialist leader, said that's what socialism means today. Socialism for the rich. And of course it used to be called state socialism or it used to be called oligarchy. Uh, so the uh, Second International and the other socialist movements all supported him in this. Uh, immediately, uh, uh, what brought mine to me was uh, in the 1960s, I was told that uh, the uh, they had meetings of the Socialist International just when it was beginning to have people like this uh, in control. Uh, someone on Wall Street told me that uh, the travel expenses in the hotel for every delegate to the uh, Socialist International was all paid for by the CIA. So what you had in Greece is an uh, is the result of this investment that the U.S. State Department, the CIA, British intelligence, uh, and uh, European intelligence had had in uh, replacing the old-time socialists uh, in the leadership of the political parties with utterly corrupt right-wingers, and you could call it the uh, colonel's administration, too. So they thought, okay, let's uh, Greece uh, became an experiment to saying, how much can we convince uh, a country to sell off of its basic infrastructure? And uh, uh, the uh, government of Greece promised uh, to sell off the Piraeus port area. Uh, there was even talk of selling off the Parthenon. Uh, and, uh, of course, the, the Greeks uh, began to go on strike. What Europe and Germany specifically is trying to do today is to get by... Uh, 
debt uh, and uh, debt foreclosure what it used to take an army to do. Uh, we were conquered by the Turks uh, hundreds of years ago. They had a whole army when they took over our land and took over the, uh, uh, the infrastructure. But now uh, the Germans and the Europeans are trying to do it without an army. We're not going to do it. Uh, we insist in having a vote. Uh, so uh, Papandreou is almost his last uh, political act says, look, if we're going to give away the country and the government uh, to the banks, if we're going to say we're selling off the, the government, the public domain, and everything that is our national patrimony to the banks, there has to be a vote on it. Angela Merkel came out and said, you can't have a democratic vote. If you have a vote, people are going to vote against this. You have to have a technocrat in. Well, what she meant by a technocrat was a bank lobbyist, someone like Tim Geithner in the United States. Uh, so uh, Angela Merkel played the role of uh, President Obama here, putting uh, the pro-Wall Street, uh, the pro-bankers, insisting that uh, there be a technocrat, there not be a vote. Uh, so there was a question over who was going to really, uh, they didn't have a vote on it. Uh, the government uh, plunged in power even more than the Democrats plunged in power here. I think the Greek government, the Socialist Party fell to about a 12% uh, approval rating, even lower than uh, uh, you have in the United States or in, uh, in England for the Labour Party there. So uh, there was an election, the Syriza Party said, look, if a debt, uh, uh, no country should be obliged to pay foreign debts and to willfully impoverish itself to a degree that it's going to force immigration, that lifespans will shorten, that uh, we'll have the Latvia syndrome uh, in Greece of uh, just demographic collapse accompanying an economic collapse. Uh, the Greek people somehow were frightened at the la of uh, voting for uh, the Syriza party. There's this tendency among voters of the uh, working class and the middle class to think somehow debts must be paid even if they can't be paid. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the Socialist Party, the left-wing parties, and the uh, Conservative parties all promised, don't worry, we're not going to give in uh, to the Europeans. Uh, the election uh, was held. Uh, the Syriza Party was uh, not voted into power. And the very next day, the government said, well, actually, we read the documents. We are going to give in. Thank God there's not another election for another few years. Uh, and so there was a whole other wave of strikes in Greece. So the question is, Greece has become an experiment to see how far can you drive down wages, how much can you uh, reduce pensions for an economy, how much can you just sell off the public domain uh, to bankers and not have a revolution. Uh, and you needed this experiment in Greece to see how far President Obama can do the same thing in the United States. The Eurozone is committing economic and financial suicide. It doesn't have a central bank that does what a central bank does, and that is uh, finance the government uh, budget deficit. Uh, the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve here, uh, the banks of China, all these banks uh, create money to fund uh, government spending and deficits, and the uh, government deficit pumps money into the economy, and that's what expands the private sector. Now, uh, Europe has been taken over by the large banks, uh, and the banks say, we don't want the government to create any money. We want uh, the, uh, all of the credit demands that are uh, needed to grow, are going, we are going to supply 
at interest to the uh, to Europe. We are going to uh, essentially become the economic planners of Europe. And uh, when a bank becomes the planner, its uh, uh, aim is not the same thing as the aim of a government. So uh, the bank's idea of uh, planning is to extract as much money from the economy as quickly as possible. It, uh, the banks have blocked Europe from running a deficit. The treaty uh, that has created the Eurozone says that European governments cannot run a budget deficit of more than 3%. Well, right now, the Eurozone is suffering from uh, the, uh, a much worse depression than we've even seen in the United States because America has its own central bank. Uh, and uh, it's imposing poverty on its uh, citizens. And uh, still, it doesn't have a central bank to run a budget deficit. So uh, instead of trying to have Keynesian countercyclical spending to pull the economy out of a recession, Europe is imposing austerity uh, uh, throughout all of the member countries. And the austerity is uh, being felt worst in the periphery that for a long time had a fascist right-wing uh, background. Uh, uh, Spain under Franco, Portugal, uh, and uh, uh, even uh, Italy uh, are have a legacy of not having a very uh, progressive uh, tax system and having a uh, government that has retained much of the corruption that was inherited from uh, the previous uh, regimes in Portugal, Spain, and Italy. Uh, and so you have an economic shrinkage that's being imposed on the population, namely no work. Uh, there's a 25% unemployment rate in Spain right now, and uh, that translates into a 50% unemployment rate for new graduates. So uh, uh, obviously the Spaniards are saying, where can we go to live? In Portugal, uh, quite a few Portuguese that I meet at conferences are uh, sending their families to Brazil because at least they speak the same language. And they say, this is quite ironic. Uh, here we are uh, moving to our former colony, which fortunately does not have uh, a European-style uh, uh, regime that's run uh, by the bankers. So you have economic shrinkage uh, in Europe much worse than you have in America, England, or any of the English-speaking countries that all have their own central banks to do what European Central Bank refuses to do. The question people are asking now is, how much poverty can you cause without having a revolution, without people fighting back? And uh, the analogy that's often used is that as a frog. When you boil a frog, if you do it very slowly, uh, gradually the frog won't realize that the temperature's going up and, until he dies and boils. Uh, but if you uh, heat up the pan that he, of water that the frog is in too fast, he jumps out. Now the question is, how can you slowly reduce wages in Europe? How can you cut back infrastructure? How can you uh, cut back the pensions? How can you slowly starve uh, the country? Well, uh, the dress rehearsal was uh, in the third world countries in the 1970s and 80s, subjected to international monetary fund austerity programs. You found, well, as long as you have military dictatorships supported by America there, 
uh, you can do this. And uh, the Chicago boys from the University of Chicago, the free marketers, came in and said, uh, you can have a free market, meaning a market free for the monopolists and the banks, uh, as long as you're willing to kill all the labor leaders uh, and close down every economics department and uh, shoot anyone who disagrees with you. So uh, that worked, at least in Latin America, uh, when, you, when the uh, free marketers uh, put in uh, General Pinochet instead of uh, the socialist uh, uh, president of Chile. Uh, the question is, how can you do this in Europe? Well, the next dress rehearsal was Russia and the Baltics, uh, the post-Soviet economies. They were so uh, eager to join Europe and to be free of uh, Stalinist Russia that uh, they were willing to tolerate a huge amount of poverty uh, thinking that somehow uh, somehow all of this is the price to be paid for being free of the Russians. Uh, and so the Europeans, uh, IMF uh, and the European Central Bank said, well look, if we can impoverish uh, the Baltic states and the Latvians, let's try and see how much we can do it uh, with uh, the southern European countries, Greece, Portugal, Spain, uh, Calabria, uh, and uh, that's the great experiment that's happening right now. And it's an experiment, of course, that uh, President Obama and the Democrats are looking here. How much can we do to America what the socialists did to Greece, to uh, 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 wind down social programs and to reduce wages in America? How can we create a depression in America without the people really fighting back? A hundred years ago, uh, on the eve of World War II, uh, it seemed that democratic uh, governments were taking over everywhere. Uh, in England, in 1909 and 1910, uh, there was an attempt finally to begin taxing the land, taxing the aristocracy, and uh, the House of Commons passed uh, a land tax. The House of Lords uh, rejected it. There was a constitutional crisis, and the upshot in 1910 was that the House of Lords could never uh, overrule a, a revenue bill, a spending bill, by uh, Parliament uh, again. In every country, it seemed that uh, the wave of democracy was going to lead populations to vote in their self-interest, and this self-interest uh, was spelled out from Adam Smith to John Stuart Mill to the Progressive Era. And uh, people expected a progressive income tax uh, when the United States uh, created the income tax in 1913. Uh, the tax rates were about very high, uh, almost 90% uh, on the uh, very rich, and only 1% of America's population actually had to file a tax return. And capital gains were taxed at the same high rate as income uh, throughout the 1920s. So it seemed that the wave of the future was going to be that uh, there wasn't going to be uh, a free lunch anymore. There wasn't going to be a rentier class, a class of hereditary landlords or aristocracy. There were, the monopolies would be broken up. Uh, the government was going to supply the economy with money and with low-cost services. Uh, and everybody expected somehow that there would be a great equalization of income. And the remarkable thing when you look at the last uh, 30 years since 1980 is that uh, th things have been just the reverse. Despite the fact that you have political democracy, people are not voting in their self-interest. They're voting... Uh, according to a kind of fairy tale myth that they're told by uh, the mass media, by politicians, and by uh, the think tanks that are endowed by the 1%. And uh, this fairy tale tells them that if you make the 1% richer, all this money is going to trickle down. 
So when uh, uh, People Magazine or Time Magazine does a survey of the most admired men in America, uh, people admire the richest people. They admire Bill Gates, uh, who start, had uh, this enormous uh, monopoly of uh, Microsoft that's uh, raised the prices so much. They admire Donald Trump, uh, who's uh, built very high-cost uh, housing and uh, stiffed his creditors. They, they admire people no matter how uh, you, get, uh, you get your money. And in the 19th century, people were talking about the distinction between earned income and uh, unearned income, economic rent, real estate, monopoly rent, and uh, financial returns. Uh, but now if you look at the national income accounts, um, in the United States in, uh, in 2011, 40% of corporate profits were made by the banks, not by industry. So you're having uh, not only a lack of democracy, you're having uh, American economy being deindustrialized, you're having it being ununionized, and yet people somehow think that all this money that's going to the top is going to trickle down, and they were able to uh, live this myth as long as they were able to borrow enough money uh, to make up the difference. Uh, from 1979 to today, uh, real wages have not gone up in the United States when you adjust for inflation. Uh, uh, and the result is that uh, almost all of the surplus uh, since the, 2000, the, the 2008 financial crisis, 93% of the rise in income has gone to the upper 1%. And yet somehow the bottom 99% isn't translating this into a political program and isn't uh, electing... Uh, a party that is going to represent in its interest and say, look, we're going to avoid a depression. We're not going to cut back Social Security. You have both parties saying, uh, we're in agreement. We're going to cut Social Security. We're going to cut government spending. We're going to shrink uh, the government sector, and that's going to shrink the, uh, the private sector. That, you know, there's going to be more unemployment. Uh, the real wage is not going to be uh, uh, raised. In, uh, when the government began to collect statistics in 1979 as to uh, what part of the population was getting the returns to wealth, that is profits, interest, dividends, and capital gain, uh, they found that uh, the wealthiest uh, 1% got uh, about uh, maybe a third uh, of all of the returns to wealth, to 1%. Uh, today, that is just about doubled. The 1% of America gets two-thirds of all the return to wealth. That means the whole bottom 99% have uh, only uh, one-third of all the wealth between them, and half of Americans have zero net worth. Uh, every uh, two years, the Federal Reserve comes out with its survey of consumer finances, and uh, it shows that half of Americans don't have any net worth. That uh, What has happened is that all of the surplus that's being created is being sucked up to the top, even as uh, companies say, well, I'm sorry, we're going to have to cut back your pensions or else we go bankrupt. Uh, we're going to have to uh, demand that you give us wage g give backs because otherwise uh, we can't meet our expenses. And the expenses are to pay the bankers, uh, to pay the management companies, to pay the hedge funds that have taken them over. And somehow uh, the voters say, well, we don't like it. We disapprove of Congress. Uh, we think it's awful. We, we uh, disapprove of the president uh, uh, doing what he's doing, but we don't have a choice. And uh, I think Margaret Thatcher expressed it in the 1980s when she said, there is no alternative. 
Tina. Uh, there is no alternative. And as long as people believe there's no alternative, they somehow think that their poverty is a result of nature. Somehow there's a Darwinian evolution that the 1%, uh, they call themselves job creators. Well, they're obviously not job creators. They're job destroyers, but the, uh, they call themselves job creators and they say it will all trickle down even when it's not trickling down at all. Uh, and they say that if you're in the 1%, you need more of an incentive to make uh, more money, so you need a tax cut so that you'll be willing to invest more and get over the uh, insecurity, but the 99% need lower wages so that they'll have to work harder to break even to pay the debts and that that's uh, the incentive they need is lower income. The 1% uh, has a higher income, so it's as if you have two different species of humanity at work, uh, the 1% and the uh, bottom 99%, but somehow uh, if uh, you uh, look at the polls that are done on Americans, uh, and, uh, maybe almost half of Americans think they have a chance to be a millionaire. They think they have a chance uh, to have uh, vertical mobility and rise upward, uh, and if you ask how, well, maybe they'll win a lottery. Uh, the odds are against them. The casino always wins. Uh, they don't realize they're playing in a casino with a stacked deck and uh, that they really don't have much of a chance uh, of winning, but uh, they uh, believe the fairy tale. If you look at the statistics uh, for when America's debt has gone up, uh, the Republican policy has always been to talk about economic shrinkage, but uh, always to double the debt. Uh, in the 12 years uh, from the Reagan to the Bush administration, uh, 1981 to 93, America quadrupled uh, its uh, public debt. Uh, again, President Bush uh, doubled uh, the debt when he came in. Uh, President Clinton actually uh, ran a budget uh, surplus for a while, actually uh, held the debt down. Uh, Bush came in, he doubled it. And then, of course, you have a Republican running as a Democrat, uh, President Obama, who came in and just uh, doubled the debt all over again, uh, $13 trillion when you add uh, the bailout of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac of $5.3 billion to the uh, government balance sheet. Uh, the $2 billion of the Federal Reserve uh, 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 cash for trash uh, swaps that it did uh, with Wall Street, uh, the uh, quantitative easing and the other giveaways, $13 trillion uh, uh, that uh, uh, the Obama administration has added. Uh, so uh, the Republicans basically, by uh, trying to cut back social programs and cut back social spending, shrink the economy. And when the economy shrinks, there is less and less ability to pay taxes. Uh, and after the 2008 uh, financial uh, crisis, uh, the capital gains economy ended, so there were not even the minimal capital gains taxes uh, that people had to pay. So uh, essentially what the Reagan era did was uh, the philosophy that if you cut back the government, the private sector will get rich. Well, the only people who got rich were basically uh, the real estate uh, and financial uh, and insurance sector, the fire sector. Uh, the first thing Reagan did was to rewrite the tax law so that the uh, absentee real estate owners, the large real estate investors, didn't have to pay any income tax. Uh, he enabled... Bill, uh, uh, 
real estate investors to pretend that the building was losing all of its value in seven and a half years by depreciating it. So uh, while interest rates were being driven down by flooding the economy with money, by inflating the stock market, inflating the real estate market, uh, you had uh, the pretense of, for accounting purposes, uh, that uh, buildings were losing uh, their value, and so landlords didn't have to pay tax, finance didn't have to pay tax. It was a bonanza uh, for Wall Street. So basically, the Republicans uh, uh, managed to secure the support of the major campaign contributors in the United States, uh, Wall Street, the real estate sector, and the large monopolies. Well, uh, beginning in around 1992, the Democrats went after this same uh, base of con contributors, and uh, Clinton run, ran by essentially adopting uh, the program in America that Tony Blair did in England, uh, the New Democrat, meaning a Republican Democrat. And he governed pretty much as a Republican, even uh, uh, to the point of, uh, uh, let, of getting rid of the Glass-Steagall Act and of essentially putting Citibank uh, through uh, Robert Rubin uh, and his uh, bank lobbyists in charge of the Treasury to follow through uh, the policies that the Republicans had begun, and he kept on Alan Greenspan, uh, the Republican head of the Federal Reserve, who was uh, simply uh, funneling all of the Federal Reserve's uh, credit creation money uh, into uh, the banking sector, into uh, the main uh, uh, campaign contributors to American politics. So uh, whether it's really Republicans or Democrats, as long as you have Wall Street as a major uh, campaign contributors, you're going to have, uh, and they can talk about uh, running a budget surplus, but their economics are uh, so uh, anti-economic, so pro-financial, that all they really do is load the economy down with debt. Beginning in around 2012, uh, the administrators who were in Washington at the time of the uh, financial crisis finally began to uh, write their autobiographies uh, about what was happening back in uh, 2008 onwards. Uh, and the main uh, two, the first one was Neil Borofsky, and the second one was Sheila Baer, who was head of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And uh, she was all in favor of uh, closing down uh, Citibank uh, and Citicorp uh, because basically it was insolvent. And uh, Tim Geithner uh, just simply refused. Uh, uh, Sheila even uh, said that she'd thought she'd convinced uh, President Obama to close it down, uh, and he told Geithner to look into it. Geithner didn't. The rumor that I was told on Wall Street was that in 2008, Geithner was, uh, was about to be offered uh, the job as uh, president of Citibank at uh, $20 million a year. Uh, what they said was, well, wait a minute. Uh, uh, Obama's just been elected. We need you to stay in Treasury. Uh, please, we need you as Treasury Secretary, as our guy in Treasury. Stay there, just as Robert Rubin uh, was uh, Citibank's guy in Treasury, to make sure that it got uh, uh, billions of dollars from the government instead of being sent to jail when it uh, violated the uh, uh, the. Uh, merger act. Uh, so uh, they needed Geithner and Treasury. So uh, uh, Sheila Bear said, well, look, uh, we, we want to close it down. Uh, and you had not only uh, Geithner, but you had uh, a lot of liberals, Paul Krugman and others saying, wait a minute, you can't close them down. You'll have a break in the chain of payments in a crisis. 
Uh, well, Sheila Baer said, wait a minute, we've just closed down Washington Mutual. Uh, most of these uh, companies are rife with crime. Uh, we're in the business of closing them down. There's plenty of money in Citibank to pay all of the depositors uh, who are insured. Everybody, every FDIC depositor can get uh, reimbursed. We can do it to Citibank. We can close down Bank of America. Uh, these are not really acting as banks. They're acting as gamblers. Uh, and a lot of these gambles, are, they've been indulging in fraud, mortgage fraud, uh, other fraud. Uh, we can close them down, repay everybody. And uh, Geithner said, uh, absolutely not. And uh, Mr. Obama said, okay, I'm ruling on, he met with the Wall Street people, I'm ruling in charge of Wall Street. We have to choose. Either we pay the 1% or we pay the 99%. So uh, uh, he got together with the leading banks of Wall Street and they said, okay, we're going to make sure that no bank is going to fail, but only the big banks. So essentially, since 2008, Mr. Obama has, has given an enormous amount of uh, uh, trillions of dollars of uh, bailout money to the five largest banks in America. And naturally, uh, the smaller banks, the community banks that have lent to... Uh, uh, either small businesses or uh, small real estate uh, have gone under. And uh, the result is there's been a, a great concentration of banks uh, so that in the United States, our banking system is beginning to look like Canada's in the sense that five banks are controlling just about everything. Well, my old boss's boss's boss from uh, Chase Manhattan, uh, Paul Volcker, uh, was uh, trying, was brought on as window dressing, uh, who came out and said, look, you can't have banks too big to fail because if they know the government's going to bail them out, they'll take huge risky debts, uh, bets, uh, and they'll turn into a casino and they'll bet which way a foreign currency will go, uh, which way the stock market will go, uh, which way interest rates will go, and if they win, they keep the money and they pay it to their managers as uh, bonuses. If they lose, they say, sorry, we're broke. The government has to bail us out or we'll pull down the whole economy with us. So the big banks are holding uh, the, uh, the economy basically hostage. Well, uh, Sheila Baer uh, wrote two books and uh, when she left uh, the FDIC, she gave an exit interview to the uh, New York Times Magazine uh, section where uh, she began to talk about how Geithner really was not representing the interests of the people, uh, but was the big banks and her uh, uh, autobiography of this experience that came out in 2012 was even more. Shortly thereafter, she came to our alternate banking group of the Occupy Wall Street group and gave a speech and uh, she was quite uh, candid in the fact that these guys are crooks and she's worried about the criminalization of the American banking system. In order to make an informed choice about where the economy is going to go, people have to have a map of where it is and uh, uh, where things are. And this map uh, usually is the national income and product accounts uh, of a country. Uh, and these are, people don't realize that what they see today in the uh, gross domestic product, the GDP accounts, is completely different from what the free marketers, Adam Smith and uh, John Stuart Mill and the other people thought uh, during the 19th century. The real free marketers thought that a free market was something that was going to be free of the landlords, free of the bankers, free of the idle rich. And they had a kind of national income that had uh, the real sector of the economy, industry, agriculture, transportation, power production, uh, producing an economic surplus. And then they had the idle rich, uh, the rentiers, uh, the landlords, the bankers, the monopolists, siphoning off money. Well, uh, 
In the late 19th century, the uh, rentiers, uh, the wealthy people, began to fight back. And uh, in America, you had uh, John Bates Clark uh, uh, say, wait a minute, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, every, anybody's income is earned by producing a service. Nobody has any unearned income uh, so that uh, today, when you have, say, banks being 17% of uh, the GDP and bank profits being 40% of all corporate profits in America, that's counted as output, for, as payment for producing a service. So national income equals product and all the income that everybody gets is somehow a product. That's if, if I were to pull a gun on you at an ATM and say, give me $1,000, uh, your money or your life, uh, you'd give me $1,000, that's my income, and I've given you a service. I've given you the service of letting you live. Uh, that's how the GDP uh, is put to today. It's really gross national cost. And uh, they, there's a confusion between product and cost underlying the GDP accounts. So that if uh, after the uh, floods of 2012, for instance, uh, uh, Hurricane Sandy, all of the rebuilding of uh, uh, d destroyed properties is counted as an addition to GDP. Uh, when you have poverty in the big cities of America and people have to buy more bars on the windows and more burglar alarms, that's all counted as GDP, as if some other standard of living goes up. And there's something even worse. Uh, to give the illusion of uh, more growth, uh, in the, about 20 years ago, Alan Greenspan uh, introduced what was called hedonic accounting. The word, nobody knows what hedonic means. It means what you're really getting. So if you're uh, buying a, uh, a computer and now the computer has twice the speed and memory that your other computer has, we're counting that as reducing the price by 50% for the hedonic service that you're getting. Uh, if you're shifting, uh, for, if you can't afford to buy steak anymore, and you're shifting to hamburger or cat food, then this uh, we're, somehow, we're changing the price index to reflect your change consumption, and now, okay, you're getting cat food instead of, uh, uh, ham of uh, steak, you, the price goes down. And if the price goes down, that means that the retirees get less for Social Security. It means the cost of living index goes down. And it means that somehow the uh, GDP is increased as if somehow all of this uh, speed of computers, uh, the, telephone, the uh, cell phones, uh, the other high technology is actually increasing the product that you get while you're having a harder and harder time paying for your groceries, paying your rent, buying clothes, paying uh, to get to work. So the transportation costs can be going up as they are in New York. The clothing costs can be going up. The, the rental costs could be going up as they're going up in New York and the rest of the economy. And somehow the price index pretends that it's all going down because if you want to buy a uh, big uh, TV uh, or uh, computer, uh, you're able to get more uh, speed and uh, uh, you're having a, the illusion of the price indexes and the, uh, the output indexes all give the illusion for growth when the real economy isn't growing at all. The average family doesn't have its living uh, conditions uh, rising. In fact, it has to pay off the debt that it's uh, taken on in earlier years just to maintain its living standards. So the living standards are being squeezed and there's an illusion that people are doing better. Well, the effect is that people read the papers, they see the statistics, and they say, gee, it must be me. The economy's growing. I'm not growing. 
do I need a therapy? I certainly need a tranquilizer. So they buy tranquilizers. That pushes up the GDP. And uh, the whole thing becomes, uh, reality is turned into a fairy tale world. You're having a statistical situation in the United States now, which is very much like what it was under uh, communist Russia in the 70s and 80s. Uh, the Russians would come out with amazing five-year plans and growth, and then the CIA would come in and put a report and saying, here's what's really happening in the Russian economy. Well, a similar thing is happening in America today. The government will come out with the unemployment statistics and the price in st statistics, and then all over the internet there will be the shadow statistics. And the shadow statistics will say, wait a minute, you say that unemployment is uh, falling down to 8%. What about the people who've stopped looking for work? And uh, they're not counted as unemployed because they're not in the employment market. What about the people that had a full-time job and are shifted to a part-time job? Uh, that's not counted. If you're employed, you're employed, whether it's full-time or part-time. Uh, and they, uh, the uh, professional economists who do the real statistics, what they call the shadow statistics, show unemployment in America already of around 18 uh, to 20 percent, uh, not uh, 8 percent, if you measured it in terms of what used to be meant by unemployment and what people uh, in the street mean by unemployment, meaning you can't get a full-time job and even uh, people who do get jobs can't get uh, the jobs that pay as well as the ones they used to have before their business was closed down when the financial managers took over. The situation today is very different for graduates than it was uh, when I grew up. I was born in 1939, and everybody in my generation was able to find jobs and get uh, easy credit. And the mortgages that we had were 30-year uh, mortgages that were self-amortizing, so by the end of our working life, we'd be able to pay them off. Today, uh, the uh, education is no longer uh, subsidized uh, like it was back then. It's gone way up, and in order to get an education, uh, to be a dentist, you have to graduate with maybe $250,000, $300,000 of student loan debt. Uh, and if you're uh, graduating as a doctor, you have not only have to begin paying the student loan, you have to pay $10,000 for uh, medical in insurance, just uh, for legal insurance in case you're sued. Uh, the whole nut that you have to have is so high that the only way of making it today is if your parents have enough money to buy you an apartment, uh, to pay for your education, because if you have to take them on, there's no way that you can earn the money back. And... Uh, in my day, if you didn't, if somehow you weren't able to get a job, if you were injured, if you owed a lot of money, you could declare bankruptcy and start all over again. I used to work for the Chase Manhattan Bank, uh, and I was told that uh, they preferred people who'd gone bankrupt because that meant they'd had a bad experience and presumably learned something from it. Uh, and it, there was not that much of a stigma uh, if you had. But today. Uh, uh, there's no way of, say, wiping out uh, student loan debt. It's a, a free ride to the banks. The government uh, lets the banks charge uh, a high rate of interest, much higher than they pay their depositors, and the government guarantees the student loans that uh, no matter what they'll be repaid, and then the government uh, will come after you or have a debt collector come after you to collect if you don't pay. So you have students graduating today uh, when the national unemployment rate in terms of people really looking for jobs is about 18%, when the unemployment rate uh, among new graduates is about 25%, and these are graduates whose student loans kick in right away, uh, there's no way they can repay them. So what's happened is that, number one, uh, the, when, when the students graduate, 
they can't uh, start a family. They don't have enough for a down payment to buy, borrow the money to buy a home. They move in with their parents, which really makes it hard to date uh, and uh, start a family. Uh, and they can't repay the loans. The parents are having to repay the loans. Uh, and the whole economics, the intergenerational uh, economics are uh, changed. Uh, the banks now step in with their uh, propagandists and the think tanks and they say, oh, we all all the debt to ourselves. It's the younger generation that owes it uh, to the elderly. But that's not the case at all. Most of the elderly don't have uh, a net worth. Most of the elderly are living on Social Security that is not kept up at all with uh, their cost of living. And uh, uh, it, the fact is that the 90% uh, of the economy that are debtors owe uh, the debts to the top 10%. And the top 10% said, we're not going to... Uh, support any politician that is going to write down the money that uh, students or mortgage debtors or bank customers owe to the banks who are us, uh, the wealthiest 1% or mainly the people who own the bank uh, stocks. And uh, you have basically the upper 1% pretending to be the elderly, like they used to pretend to be the widows and orphans, as if widows and orphans lived uh, as coupon clippers uh, on trust funds. Uh, and uh, the rest of the economy is really uh, being told that this is just a generational debt to the elderly, not a debt of the debtors to the creditors uh, of the industrial economy to Wall Street. And they're trying to pay this debt uh, is uh, bankrupting the economy. And they're trying to get jobs uh, to participate in a fairy tale economy that doesn't exist uh, is going to be a treadmill to bankruptcy, except the banks have rewritten the bankruptcy laws so you can't declare bankruptcy like you used to anymore. So all of the, uh, all of the escape hatches, all of the safety valves that were in uh, 50 years ago uh, when I graduated from school have been closed by the bank lobbyists uh, and there's really a financial war. And this isn't like the old class war of employees uh, and employers over working conditions and wages. This is a war of the financial sector against the rest of the economy to extract uh, the whole economic surplus is debt service. Uh, not many people think there's been a boom in Wall Street. Uh, there really hasn't. Uh, now that you have uh, Wall Street turned away from a, uh, a means of raising money to uh, build new factories and to fund new businesses, it's more turned into a, a casino uh, of betting which way interest rates will go, which way foreign currencies will go. And the way that Wall Street makes money now is on arbitrage. In other words, you can borrow, a bank can borrow from the Federal Reserve at one quarter percent interest and it can lend to uh, mortgage debtors, to people buying a house at 5% uh, uh, interest. It can lend to uh, Brazil at 13% interest. It can lend uh, to Greece at 18% uh, interest and then uh, uh, turn it over to the lawyers to try to sue. So you have the whole uh, economy turned into a betting parlor over how quick the collapse is going to occur and how long it's going to take the population to fight back and replace an oligarchy with democracy. That's what the real fight's about. And it's a, it's a, a gamble on politics without the population knowing that there's this old gambling going on around it. It's like uh, the 99% the are in a chicken fight uh, or a cock fight, and uh, they're all Wall Street sitting as the audience of gamblers betting on uh, you know, what's going to happen, and uh, they're all fighting each other instead of deciding to create a fair economy uh, like they were doing 50 years ago. 
What nobody expected 50 years ago or even 30 years ago was the degree to which the U.S. economy was going to be deindustrialized. Ever since the late 19th century, America was leading uh, the world in industrial innovation. And now you're not having it. Uh, and you're not having it for two reasons. Uh, much of this is blamed on the high American wage rates and unionization. And there's no question that wages are much lower in uh, China. And now even China's higher uh, wage rates than Indonesia or other countries. Uh, but you're not having capital investment here anymore. And that's because of the way in which the tax system has been uh, gimmicked to uh, enable people to make money in the easiest way possible. And it's very hard to make money by building a factory and developing a market for the product, and it takes long-term planning. The Now that you have the financialization of the American economy, the financial time frame is very short. It's a hit and run. Uh, they make money uh, by uh, buying a company and then stripping its assets, carving it up and shutting it down. Uh, it used to be that the stock market was supposed to be to raise money for new factories, to build uh, uh, new plants and equipment, to hire more labor, to provide more goods. But since uh, the Reagan uh, changes, since 1980, you've had the stock market become a vehicle for corporate raiders. Uh, it started uh, really with Drexel Burnham and Michael Malcolm uh, doing the... Uh, the junk bond uh, financing. You could borrow, uh, you could look at a company and say, wait a minute, I can uh, borrow money and take its profits and pay out twice as much in interest because interest is tax deductible uh, than I could pay in dividends. So it makes uh, the power elite, the wealthiest 1% of the population, they can get twice as much money by uh, lending money in the form of debt than they can by uh, actually taking profits on which they have to pay an income tax. So the 1% have changed the tax laws to encourage debt financing, not equity financing. And this means that uh, the stock market has become a vehicle for corporate takeovers, for raiders to buy companies, uh, and they uh, will uh, cut costs by seizing the pension plans, threatening bankruptcy, uh, downs uh, making the uh, uh, labor uh, reduce its wages voluntarily, reduce its pension agreements voluntarily, and by squeezing uh, the economy down. So the U.S. market has steadily uh, been shrinking. Uh, meanwhile, the government has been signing free trade agreements uh, with other countries so that uh, in, instead of protecting uh, American industry with tariffs like they did in the 19th century during the industrial takeoff, uh, they're reducing the uh, tariffs, and the result is a race to the bottom throughout the world, as everybody's looking to produce at the cheapest rates, and that generally means uh, it means lower wage rates, but even more than that, more important than lower wages is the presence of infrastructure. Uh, the American economy, uh, the government is not spending on infrastructure anymore. Again, it's cheaper to just extract money and take it out and uh, pay it out to the creditors than it is to uh, fix the bridges, to build new railways. So the reason that uh, companies are investing in China is not 
because of the low wages there primarily. It's because uh, the government of China has built up uh, roads, a uh, high-speed railway, has a, a good internet system, electronics. Uh, it's near all of the uh, uh, mineral refineries, uh, uh, the metal producers. Uh, it's, uh, the government has uh, created a mixed economy, which is exactly what America did in the 19th century and what Germany did uh, around the turn of the uh, 20th century. Uh, China's doing what many made uh, first England, then America, and then Germany rich. It uh, has a mixed economy where the government is providing basic uh, services at cost. Uh, uh, transportation services are subsidized. Uh, social services are subsidized. Uh, whereas America has been uh, winding down the government. So even if labor in America would work for nothing, for free. You still couldn't afford to produce here with a government that has a tax system like the U.S. government has uh, that uh, favors uh, debt rather than equity and a government that's uh, tearing up the infrastructure and that is untaxing real estate, making it so expensive for uh, labor to live here. Forty uh, percent of the average American budget, uh, workers' budget, goes for housing. 15% is deducted from the, wage, uh, from the wages as FICA uh, withholding for Social Security and uh, uh, Medicare. Uh, about uh, 10 to 15% of the budget goes for other taxes, income taxes and excise taxes, um, and about 10 to 15% for other uh, loans to the banks. So 75% of the workers' paycheck in America goes to pay the financial sector or uh, the, tax sh the government tax shift off uh, finance onto labor before it has a chance to spend the 25% that it earns on services. So uh, it's, it's the way in which the Americans have said a real estate boom is making us rich when it, uh, all the real estate boom has done is make it so expensive to buy a house of one's own to live in to get security for housing that you have to go into debt for your life at such a high rate uh, that you have to pay so much every month that no one can afford to uh, pay you a wage that will enable you to pay your mortgage debt, to pay the bank, to pay the tax shift off Wall Street onto you, and uh, uh, to pay for basic services uh, that other countries uh, provide in subsidized rates. German labor gets paid just as much as American labor, but Germany produces high-quality manufacturers because it has a, a far superior infrastructure system and a much better tax system. The objective of the Obama administration is to lower wage levels by 30%. Uh, he uh, wants uh, the unemployment rate, uh, he intends to rise above 20%. He said, look, it worked in Spain, it worked in Greece. Uh, Obama is put in uh, for what used to be called fascism with a friendly face. He's going to impose a worse depression than the 1930s to essentially enable the financial class that he represents, along with Tim Geithner and uh, the thugs that he's put in the, uh, uh, the government, to essentially loot the economy. You're going to see in the next three or four years the biggest looting uh, that you've ever seen in the Western world. It'll be uh, very much like uh, Columbus uh, discovering America and the Spaniards looting it. Now you're going to have uh, the Democrats and the Republicans carving up the economy, lowering wage levels here, and making America America look like old Europe. The class war is back in business.
the people? Yes, they'll shift to cat food. They will continue to download their, uh, downgrade their living standards. Uh, they will blame themselves, but their insurance companies are no longer paying for psychotherapy. So uh, probably the sale of tranquilizers and drugs uh, uh, will go up. Uh, there uh, already is a large out-migration of uh, people from India and skilled labor from other countries that are now leaving America and going back to countries uh, that are growing more rapidly, uh, an influx uh, into China, uh, into uh, uh, the BRIC countries. So you're having an emigration of skilled labor. Uh, if you want to look at America's future, look at Latvia and look at Greece. Uh, that's really the dress rehearsal. I thank you very much, Dr. Michael Hudson, and I thank all of you for taking this opportunity to spend this hour with us.